you should move every 30 seconds. Stay still for longer than 30 seconds. Somebody can line up a sniper's rifle on you and they can kill you. Welcome to Conflict Chronicles, the podcast where battlefield stories are told. Share in the physical and mental experiences of those who have been on the front line of conflict. I am your host, Neil. This show may contain adult language and strong themes from conflict zones. Listener discretion is advised. At Conflict Chronicles, our aim is to capture all stories. Today is a great example as we speak with Richard Nuji, a retired three-star general from the British Army. Lieutenant General Richard Nuji was commissioned into the Army in 1986. He completed operational tours of Northern Ireland, Bosnia, Kosovo, Iraq, Cyprus and Afghanistan. He has specialised in personnel, culminating in being Chief of Defence People, the global head of human resources for all of British defence. He spent his final year in the Army writing a review of the defence's approach to climate change and sustainability, and has since been appointed as the non-executive director for climate change for defence. Appointed member of the British Empire in 1998, Commander of the British Empire in 2012, Commander of the Royal Victorian Order in 2016, and Companion of the Order of Bath in 2020. He was awarded the United States Legion of Merit for his services in Afghanistan in 2014. Richard has numerous interests both within defence and outside. He is Chair of the Navy, Army, Air Force Institute Board, Director of his own strategic advisory company, a Fellow of the Royal Geographical Society, a Fellow of the Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development, a Companion of the Chartered Management Institute, he holds a Master of Arts in Military Affairs and is a graduate of the City of Guilds Institute. He is Patron, Chair and Trustee of a number of charitable trusts. Today, Richard is taking us back to the time as a young, newly commissioned officer on his first operational tour to Northern Ireland. He explains how this has shaped his outlook on life and his career ever since. Richard, could you take me back to your first time in Northern Ireland in 1987? So a young, very young troop commander in the Royal Artillery and done 10 operational tours, and I think I've taken my guns on one of them, so over my career. Guns as in artillery guns, I presume. So this was as an infantryman, which we had to be trained for because obviously as a, as a gunner, uh, needed new skills. Where were you based? We were based just south of Belfast in Northern Ireland, around what was called the Mays Prison. In those days, H-blocks where the most severe IRA terrorists were 
held once they'd been convicted. The job nominally was to make sure that nobody broke into the prison. So you had guards making sure, who were prison guards, making sure nobody broke out of the prison. We were uh, in in an outer circle beyond that and patrolling to make sure that nobody broke in so that um, it was a double protection. And it was the most boring job I think I've done in the army, uh, or one of the most boring, because you were sitting outside a prison. And I have the utmost respect for prison guards but I wouldn't do their job, thank you very much indeed. In fact, I was skiing for the regimental ski team, so I spent most of my time when I wasn't literally guarding the prison, when I was bored at skiing on roller skis around the prison because it's a huge area and it obviously has a, a very good road around the wall. But actually, a call came relatively quickly to reinforce the 2nd Battalion, the Light Infantry, up in Belfast. 2LI based in a place called North Howard Street Mill in Belfast. And I volunteered, and I volunteered my troop. I hope they forgive me now, but I volunteered my troop to go up to Belfast, frankly, because I was bored. Um, I wanted something interesting to do. And I felt that sitting around a prison wasn't really getting what we were after in terms of an experience. And so volunteered, we went up to Belfast. So of the tour, I probably spent... 60 to 70% of my time actually up in Belfast with 2LI. That would have been very different to the prison environment. Very different types of patrolling. So from the Mays prison, we were doing rural patrols. Rural patrols lasted anywhere between 8 and 18 hours, probably. You're out what we would call bashing Yulu, so literally patrolling. Very, very clear message to in our training to us, um, which was the more professional you are, the less likely somebody will attack you. They'll wait for an unprofessional unit to come along. They know you're only there for a relatively few months. And in those days, we were doing four and a half month tours. And in fact, the maze prison was so boring, they were even shorter than that. And people realise that you get bored very quickly. How old were you at this time? I was 23, just come out of university, just finished Santos. This was sort of relatively close on after that. I finished at Sandhurst in 86, so less than a year before I had actually joined the army properly as opposed to just joining Sandhurst. So I was 23. My soldiers were a lot more experienced, some of them, than I was in Northern Ireland, which led to you know a real leadership challenge because they thought they knew better than I. And I was the officer and the brand new officer trying to, if you like, lead soldiers as well. I would imagine that you even doubled your leadership challenge moving from the prison to Belfast. North Hand Street was fascinating because whilst rural patrols were 18 to 18 hours, urban patrols were probably maximum one to two hours. You'd go out. And like in the rural environment, the more professional you were, the less likely you were to be attacked. That was consistent. But your style of patrolling was completely different. And I was, given this is part of the United Kingdom, I was genuinely shocked by what I found in Belfast. Now, We weren't attacked every day, and it it doesn't equate to the sorts of images that you get from Iraq and Afghanistan, the more recent images. But we knew that the IRA targeted the enemy as such, targeted the gates of North Hyde Street Mill, which was an enclosed camp. So you use different gates every time. And as opposed to doing one patrol a day, you were perhaps doing four or five patrols a day. So you'd come in, you'd debrief, you'd have a short break, you'd then go for your new set of orders, you were going to somewhere different, and then you'd go out again. And then you'd come in, you'd debrief and so on. And you might do that for perhaps five times a day. That sounds like a punishing pace. 
it was exhausting because you're on your toes nonstop. You had to assume that everywhere you were going, you were being targeted. We did a search in the Ballymurphy. The Ballymurphy was a particularly sort of Republican area of Belfast, and we were doing a search. And some of the soldiers from 2LI were doing the search, and we were in the sort of the cordon, the inner cordon, to make sure that uh, nobody interfered with the search. And I remember one of the light infantry officers turning around to me and saying, you should move every 30 seconds. Stay still for longer than 30 seconds. Somebody can line up a sniper's rifle on you and they can kill you. So I moved every 30 seconds. You know, we had body armor on. Again, not the same as modern body armor. wasn't as heavy. But we had body armor, helmets, obviously, and uh, rifles. Moving every 30 seconds for 45 minutes, which is as long as it took for the search to happen, is exhausting. Getting up, getting down 90 times, effectively, in 45 minutes. You know, it's, it's like doing press-up on steroids. It was just that thought that, you know, you're tired by moving, by making sure your soldiers are moving, by making sure that you're a dynamic presence rather than just a static thing that is sitting there, which is an easy target. How do you deal with an incident in such a complex environment? We had some interesting examples. Let's say we were on patrol and one of my soldiers was shot in the shot in the shoulder, actually, and the local community gathered around him, not to support him, but to stop the ambulance getting to him. We had to push the people aside, and eventually the ambulance couldn't go, so he ran to the ambulance and then collapsed in the ambulance. He was fine. Luckily, it didn't hit anything too concerning, so he had a hole in his shoulder. This concept of people actually wanting to do you harm by not allowing the ambulance to get to you is alien to a culture where actually if somebody's hurt, you try and help them, um, which I find quite interesting. Northern Ireland, for a lot of people from around the world, will understand it is part of the United Kingdom, but there is a body of water in the way. And so when you went there, did you really understand politics, the conflict itself? One of the things we did in training was a lot of history. Funny enough, when I went to Iraq in 2003, the trainers didn't know what we were going to do because we were going immediately after the warfighters. And they said, well, we have no idea what you're going to be doing out there because we don't know what state the country is going to be in. So for two days, they taught us just history. That was all they taught us, pretty much. And no techniques. And then as the commanding officer of the battle group, I said, so is that it? And they said, yes, we don't know what you can do. Just train your troops. And I went back to my Northern Ireland training and taught the regiment and the battle group about Northern Ireland and about not about the history, obviously, but about the techniques we'd used in Northern Ireland in Iraq, and that served its purpose for what we called TELIC 2, which was the second iteration of troops in, in Iraq. So it was immensely valuable being in Northern Ireland as a youngster. Only my second in command had been to Northern Ireland. All the others hadn't been there. So he and I designed a process of, of training that took us straight back to Belfast and, and Londonderry, where I did another bit of a tour, and, and other parts of Northern Ireland. The sectarian challenges of Northern Ireland are very complex. So we learned a lot about history. We learned about the current history. And that came out in two different ways, actually. One was I was patrolling in a place called Portadown. There was an illegal march by a whole lot of Protestants going into a place called Lurgan. Lurgan was a publican area. If the Protestants had marched into that area, there would have been trouble. No doubt at all about that. Uh, and they were busting for a fight. And I put my troops directly across the road, a bit like a sort of the thin red line type idea. We're going to stop you going down that route. Incidentally, I put my armoured cars, effectively, they were called pigs, probably because of the way they drove, but they were big armoured vehicles close to and got the children to play on them or encourage the children to play on them. 
Children love playing on bits of kit, but it diffused some of the atmosphere as part of what I was trying to do. But I then went to speak to the head of this march and I said, you're not going there. And he said, well, you just try and stop us. And we got into a conversation. And I said, look, you know, I've got troops with weapons. You really don't want to come down this road. Um, I'm going to stop you. And I will open fire if I need to, but I really, really don't want to open fire on you. So we got chatting and he asked me about my history, about who I was, why I had any right at all being in Northern Ireland. And I explained that I was a, a Huguenot. Huguenots are French Protestants who were kicked out of France by the Catholics. I knew who good King Billy was, William III, who had defeated James II in Ireland at the Battle of the Boyne. You know, I knew my history because it had been taught to us. And actually, I love history anyway. And that totally changed the concept. He said, so you're a prod. And I said, yes. And I've been kicked out of my country by Catholics as well. You know, OK, so that was in the 1720s in France. And this was in the 1980s in, in part of the United Kingdom. He said, OK, I trust you. I'm not going to march. And he put off the march. Now, I've got no idea whether that was the reason he did it or because he saw the troops who were just resolutely standing in the raid with their rifles pointed. I had no idea. But I think it helps to understand a bit of the history. And in a similar way, we were, we were patrolling down one of the streets in Belfast. Some youths came up and said, and I will never forget this, said, make like Captain Nyarak. And they got on their backs and did what, what I think is called dead ants. Captain Nyarak was undercover uh, intelligence company in Northern Ireland who was captured by the IRA, tortured and killed. And he won the George Cross, actually, because he didn't give away any of the secrets or anything. And it must have happened either in the late 1970s or the early 1980s. Captain Nyarak was treated as a hero because he had been really vilely tortured and so on. And eventually his body was chucked out. I think the body was recovered, although I'm not sure about that. But he was somebody who was known to us. It showed a pretty nasty side of Northern Ireland. They were prepared to catch somebody and talk to them and then kill them. You don't have that association with Northern Ireland. So these youths make like Captain Narek. It was deliberately provocative. It was deliberately trying to rile us as we were going down the street in Belfast. And that's something that I found quite quite difficult. But on the other hand, you simply could not react to that sort of thing. But it gave an impression of what the country was like. How did you counter that type of threat? When we were in our pigs driving down parts of Belfast, uh, you had what's called top cover, which is soldiers standing at the top uh, wearing helmets. It's a deterrent. They're pointing their weapons out. And it's a deterrent. And we used exactly the same in Iraq. We used top cover in Iraq. And in fact, one of the real sadnesses for me was, if I can just digress for a second. Richard, please do. I commanded everything south of Basra, my battle group. To start with, it was relatively benign. And so we were in what most people would call armoured cars. So they were, they were cars, normal Pajeros or whatever, with armoured glass. I got a sixth sense after about a month and a half that uh, the mood was turning very much and that we should come out of those. It wasn't safe. We should move into Land Rovers with top cover. And the whole point was top cover. It was a deterrent. Um, And if somebody was going to shoot you, you could shoot back. Whereas in these armoured cars, they were completely enclosed and you couldn't. You couldn't open the windows, obviously, because they were armoured glass. So I moved my regiment in to move them out of these armoured cars, beautifully comfortable with air conditioning. And, you know, this was 45 degrees of heat in Iraq in the summer into Land Rovers that were open to the elements that were 
very hot. I was going to sort of swear then. Very hot. Uh, they were uncomfortable, but you had top cover. And uh, which I had learned from Northern Ireland. My saddest thing is I turned around to the company commander of the military police and said, you have to get out of these cars. You must go into Land Rovers with top cover because I, I consider it too dangerous. I said, you know, I'm not, this is not being clever by being in vehicles that you can't react from. And he said, yes, 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 Colonel, I must do that. The next day he was killed in his armoured car. He hadn't moved into top cover. And if he'd been in a top covered vehicle, he would not have been killed. It's as simple as that. And it's my biggest regret that I hadn't said it to him earlier. Going back to Northern Ireland, where I learned my trade, if you like, we were going along in pigs. And the children as young as 12 were, or, or younger probably, were throwing stones at the top cover. So you had visors to stop it hurting you, but and you, you had something around your back, back of your neck. Actually, that was as much for the acid that they might throw at you as for the stones, so a neck cover. But the 12-year-olds weren't very good at hitting you. By the time they'd got to 16, every single rock hit your helmet. And you can't kill somebody for throwing a rock at you. You can't point a weapon. You can't fire at them to doing that. You could fire at them if it was going to be a mortar bomb or a petrol bomb or something that was going to threaten life and limb, but for a stone, you can't. So you just put up with it. You put up with the fact that as you were driving around, you weren't driving particularly fast because you were looking out, you were looking, you were trying to produce a presence. These guys were just throwing stones at you that were hitting your helmet every time, the 16, 18-year-old. I think for many people, people listening, they will really struggle with the concept that on one hand you're negotiating with somebody in a civil way using history to say we're not going to shoot and people are quite clearly being incredibly provocative and you're restraining yourself and your soldiers dealing with that must create enormous amounts of mental stress I think the really important lesson that I took into Iraq, I took into Cyprus, to a certain extent I took into Afghanistan, but Afghanistan was very different. But certainly in Iraq and when we were there, it is about controlled restraint. Stan McChrystal came, General Stan McChrystal came out with effectively the same thing, controlled restraint. I drilled this into my soldiers in, in Iraq in a way I learned in Northern Ireland. And, and in Northern Ireland, it was everybody was doing it. And so you did not shoot unless you had every, re, every reason to shoot. And we were, we were drilled with every person you kill, you create a hundred who are against you. That was the message that we were given time and time and time again. My commanding officer said, treat everybody as if they're your grandmother, i.e. with respect, with a sense of understanding. Only if they react badly do you react badly to them. You try and win them over, this, this hearts and minds idea. You try and win them over. You try and make sure that actually you don't get provoked. And, and in Iraq, actually, one of my soldiers, who I think was one of my bravest soldiers in some respects, uh, we were doing a search. He went upstairs and there was a young man pointing a Kalashnikov at him with his, his finger on the trigger. My soldier had every right to shoot him, every right. His life was absolutely on the line and it was either him or the, the guy shooting. And instead of that, because of this control, controlled restraint, which I had tried to imbue in the whole battle group, it doesn't always work, of course it doesn't, and some people can't constrain themselves. But he just went up to this, this youngster uh, with the Kalashnikov and just ripped the rifle off him. 
that was the epitome of what I was trying to do, which is we didn't therefore have a body. We didn't therefore have 100 people who were turned against us. We had one person who we could educate. Actually, this was not what you needed to do, that you could try and encourage a respect for us because we were trying to do a job of stopping violence as opposed to oppose us because they saw us just as violence. And it's exactly the same in Northern Ireland. You're constantly trying to keep the lid on it. Richard, was it just attacks from rifle fire? I was the ops officer in Fermanagh. The IRA targeted my ops room. It had a big mast on top of it. And they, we had things called Mark 10 mortars. Mark 10 mortars were homemade mortar bombs that were made from the sort of oxygen tanks, which, of course, everybody's now familiar with. But the oxygen, these big oxygen tanks, they'd t- take off the top, they'd fill it with homemade explosive, uh, which is about 150 pounds of homemade explosive or 200 pounds of explosive. They'd weld the top back on, they'd put a fuse on it, and then they'd just fire it through a homemade mortar tube. And we had what was called the base plate, which, is, which was a lorry with 12 of these Mark 10s aimed at my ops room. This was uh, 1991. They fired it. Now, we were unbelievably lucky because there were two switches on the, uh, as we found out subsequently, on the base plate. One was for firing the mortars. Uh, the other was for destroying the base plate. So after all the mortars had gone off, there was a, there was a time delay what happened is you you pressed the buttons for the mortars, there was a short delay while you ran away, and then the base plate would destroy. The second switch was to, to destroy the base plate in case something went wrong and you could just destroy the base plate. They pressed the wrong switch. So what I had was 1,500 pounds of explosive going off 50 yards away, 50 metres away from my ops room aimed at my ops room because it was a long so San Angelo, which was the base we were on, was it was an old airstrip. So it was the it was it was basically the runway. It was a long, thin thing, and they could get within 50 yards of my of my ops room. So having 1,500 meters of sorry, 1,500 pounds of explosive going off 50 meters away was it was my birthday actually. My brother phoned up about two minutes after this thing went off. Uh, to, to wish me a happy birthday. And I said, bye now, water attack, goodbye, which sort of went around the family quite quickly. It was, it was extraordinary, actually, in this case, where a huge bomb going off right next to you. I was in my ops room. Everything came off the walls. It just destroyed, you know, I can see it still in sepia because it was the amount of dust that came off with it. The window from my bedroom was blown. Literally, the whole window was blown onto my bed, which was the other side of the room. If I'd been in it, them to kill me. Sadly, it was one of those lovely things that they used to produce birthday cakes for people's birthdays. So they had produced the most lovely birth cake. And when I finally, this was at nine o'clock in the morning, and finally, four o'clock in the afternoon, I got out of the ops room and went to the officer's mess for a cup of tea. They produced this birthday cake and it was just completely covered in shattered glass. And said, well, I'm terribly sorry, we can't give that to you. And created a pink blancmange, which frankly was disgusting, but I had to eat it because it was the only thing they could give me as a birthday present, as a sort of birthday cake on my birthday. Incredibly lucky that nobody was killed. Incredibly lucky that nobody was killed. We had uh, some very, very close escapes on that particular day. If it had been the Mark 10 mortars going off, the assessors said the first five would have destroyed the mortar hardening that we had on our base, and the next seven uh, would have got in and killed everybody inside. So there were times when you reacted to violence with violence. But when you don't have violence, if you can try and stop violence, then that is what we were trying to do. And that was 
equally in Belfast as it was in in the rural environment. You sound very um, very pragmatic about all of these events. Uh, do you think that's your wisdom now of age, or? Did you have this perspective in your 20s when you were looking at these things or was there ever a time you just go, look, no, we just need to go and get these people? I think our training was really good in Northern Ireland. We had a horrendous year in Northern Ireland in 1972, the British Army. I think I'm right in saying that since the war and probably the Korean War, that was the year when more people were killed than any other. Uh, you know, that includes Iraq and Afghanistan. And I think, I think I'm right in saying there were more people killed in 1972 in Northern Ireland than there were in the whole of Afghanistan. Over 400 people killed. Um, I, I think I'm right in saying that. It certainly is close to. When you think about that, that's on UK soil. We've got a battalion wiped out effectively over a year. That's extraordinary and not something that we were expecting in Northern Ireland. I spoke to some of my more senior soldiers who'd fought in 1972 because it was only 15 years before. You'd go for two months. That was all people could cope with. You'd come back for a month. You'd go for another two months. You'd come back for a month. You'd go for two months. They said they were utterly, utterly exhausted by the end of 1972. And it was 71, 72, which was really bad years. But the army learnt. And the army learnt so much about how to treat people. And I am very conscious that there will be people who fundamentally disagree with me and say that the army were just brutal everywhere they went in Northern Ireland. I would argue we learnt by the 80s, by the late 70s, early 80s, and by the mid 80s when I started going there, actually we learnt a huge amount about trying to reduce conflict. And it was in our training. It was totally in our training to try and do that. But on the other hand, we absolutely went out to capture the people who were doing this to us if we possibly could. We had a lot of special forces in Northern Ireland who were doing that. We would go out of our way to try and capture people, but we wouldn't go out of our way to provoke. Perhaps, you know, some did and some did earlier, but certainly from my perspective, and remember, I'm not an infantryman, I'm a gunner. This was not my natural territory. I was trying to do what was right. And what was right was not to provoke, but to try and keep the peace and try and try and encourage people that actually we were there to try and keep the peace rather than take sides. Really difficult when you're being attacked. I had circumstances where, where, you know, people did attack us. You react to the incident. Your training kicks in and you react to the incident. This was clearly a time that has really shaped you. It's left a legacy. I'm not particularly fond of the Irish, if I can be brutally honest, because a number of them tried to kill me on a number of occasions. But one can put that to one side. You can compartmentalise that to a certain extent and think, actually, what I was trying to do was the right thing, which was try and maintain a piece of peace in, in my country. Do you think that early experiences conditioned the rest of your career? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. My mother said I came back a completely different person the first time I, I went. I matured, uh, took soldiering much more seriously. You know, there's, no, there's nothing more sobering than having somebody try and attack you when you suddenly realise this is not a game. When you see the results, and I've been fortunate that I have not often seen the results of people after a, a battle or after a, it's not really a battle in Northern Ireland, it was after an incident. I haven't seen that that often, but it stays with you. One of my officers died in Iraq and they needed somebody to identify the body. And I said, as commanding officer, Bearing in mind this was early and that we weren't expecting many casualties, I said, that's my responsibility to go and do it. I don't want to put that responsibility onto anybody else. So I went and identified the body. 
I had that image of this officer dead in my mind. So I asked my adjutant for a photo of him to be on my desk of him in happier times. So the image faded from being this dead body, which I had identified, into the image of a soldier who was loving life on my desk. So I saw it every single day when I was sat at my desk to make sure that the image that I wanted to remember him by was one of life, not one of death. I've been lucky that hasn't happened that often to me. And I've been able to overcome it using photos and things like that. But it absolutely, Northern Ireland, completely dominated, in a sense, my operational career because I used it time and time again, those techniques, those procedures. One of my tours, I spent six weeks on the border with South Armagh, dug in. It took us five days to dig in. We, we sat in this trench for six weeks. I got one shower in the six weeks when I was helicoptered out to Cross McGlen, which was a haven of peace. And Cross McGlen was the most attacked police station in the UK at the time. And yet this was a haven of peace because of what was happening in the trenches. I was told we were the longest serving in a trench uh, since the Korean War, having spent six weeks. And then the RAF refused to pick us up from our trenches because it was too dangerous. So we had to patrol, actually, I would say walk, because we were completely laden down with so much stuff, 100, 120 pounds on our backs and taking everything out. We had to patrol five kilometres to the north across McGlenn where they thought it was safe to pick us up. You know, that sort of thing never leaves you. And, and actually, I thought we were unbelievably dangerous. And when we got there, we were on the top of a hill. When we got there, my boss turned around to me and said, right, you're digging in now because they can't pick you up till the morning. So we spent all night digging in in case the IRA mortared us. You know, this was, you know, I haven't lived through the sorts of experiences that young soldiers have lived in, in Iraq and Afghanistan when it got much nastier. I haven't lived through that personally. But these experiences stay with you all your life and they fashion how you lead, particularly in this environment. How do you deal with the paradox of when you eventually get posted away from Northern Ireland and essentially you're going back to another part of the United Kingdom and people, same skin colour, same money, same way of life, but all of a sudden there isn't the hostility, there isn't the threat that there is in Northern Ireland. How do you comprehend that and how do you adjust so I think it's really difficult, and some, some people find it more difficult than others. I remember on my, I think, third Northern Ireland tour, I was married. I got married between the second and third tours. My wife, brand new wife, I'd been so excited about getting married. By then, we were in six-month tours, and we had a R and r so rest and recuperation period of a week. I'd said to my wife, well, why don't we go skiing? So we went to Switzerland to go skiing, and at the end of that week, I was thinking, what have I married? Not who have I married, what have I married? I could not believe, you know, it was a disaster, frankly. Um, and we, we, we learned a huge amount about ourselves in that week, and I just couldn't wait to get back to Northern Ireland. And we'd been married, I mean, my first year of marriage, we spent 10 weeks together and the rest of the time I was away. So we had a very gentle introduction to marriage, and this was a week in the second year of marriage, and I just couldn't believe what I'd done. And I thought, you know, this marriage is going to last no time at all. We're still married, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> 30 years later. I learned, we both learned from that, that we would just not get on for a period of time when I came back from operations. So 10 times or eight times since I've been married, my wife, who is just amazing, 
just learned that we wouldn't get on, that we wouldn't we wouldn't hit it off, that we you know little things would just throw me into a rage. An example was, what colour kettle shall we buy? I don't care what colour kettle. You know, just make up your mind. It would turn you into an enormous rage over pathetically little things. Because at the back of your mind, and I think this is absolutely common for anybody who's been through conflict, I would like to think, you don't want to bring that conflict into your family. So you don't want to spend all your time telling your wife how horrible it was. But on the other hand, you need to talk about it. And that's why quite a lot of people go down to the pub. But you don't want to tell the public what it's like because they won't believe you. They don't believe the stories that you come up with. So you internalize it, and that can be very damaging to your mental health. And so you have to find some sort of release. And the release actually I had, and this sounds pathetic, but the release I had was talking to my dogs. And I would take the dogs out for a really long walk, and I would talk to them about my experiences of Northern Ireland or latterly Iraq and Afghanistan. And actually, I was interviewed by my local uh, radio station when I was in Afghanistan the, first, the second time. And, and they said, what do you really miss about the UK? Because I was out there for 14 months. And I said, what I really miss about the UK is my dogs. And the reason for that is because they were my mental release. They were my opportunity to get away, get away from my wife, uh, who I wasn't getting on well with, and get away from all those pressures of making little decisions when you've just had life and death decisions in front of you. Your explanation, I actually think, Richard, is one of the better ones I've heard. And, and I think it will bring a lot of comfort to people hearing how you've dealt with that. And so it, it's very, very relatable. Well, I, as I say, I think it sounds a little bit sort of weird. Actually, I, I've used my dogs as much as I learned from my operational tours. The other thing I used to do, and I don't do so much, I used to always have quite fast cars, and I used to go in my car and wherever I was in the world. And my first four tours I did from Germany, where there's no speed limits on the autobahns, I would drive at 130, 140 miles an hour, the speed at whichever my car could go, deliberately to, in a sense, almost thrill myself back into real life. Doing that in the UK is a bit more dangerous, partly because there are speed limits, but partly also because the roads aren't as straight and going at 130 miles an hour in the UK is not a good idea. The reality is I used to do that. I used to just jump in my car. If, I, if I'd had enough of, of whatever, I'd just jump in my car and just drive. And that was my release. Cars for me were freedom, freedom from home, freedom from family. And when I was a youngster, um, I bought as fast cars as I could afford to be able to get away and to be able to take inherently dangerous. And it was partly going back to that danger. After I was married, I did that once. Actually, it was after the Iraq tour, which was highly stressful in the end. I just got in my car and drove and drove as fast as I could in, in Yorkshire, which is a really bad idea. And actually, one of my soldiers did that and killed themselves. Um, it's, it is just not a good idea. So I learned not to do that. I mean, it's incredibly selfish if you kill yourself and you've got a family anyway, through that sort of rage, which comes from coming back into normal life. So I use the dogs and I use that now. And I still occasionally will just take the dogs out on a walk. We've got a lovely 13-year-old Springer Spaniel and a six-year-old and a one-year-old now. But the 13-year-old Springer Spaniel has been my absolute saviour for 13 years. And she and I, um, I listen to music. She knows I'm listening to music and we dance around the walk together. And it's just stupid. And it's anybody seeing us would think this man's mad. But actually, it's a release. It's a complete divorce from the pressures of operational tours where you're constantly under pressure. And as an officer, 
it's about minimizing the loss of life and improving the circumstance that you're in. Richard, you were 23 when you first went to Northern Ireland. You've just retired at a very senior rank. What would you tell yourself at 23 years of age now, all the things that you now know? I think there's a couple of things. One is have confidence. Have confidence that you can make a mistake and recover from it. Confidence in people. I have an inherent belief in the goodness of people as a result of my tours of Northern Ireland. Soldiers will always sort of let you down when you least expect it. That's human nature. But inherently, people are trying to do the right thing. And even those who are trying to kill me were trying to do the right thing for their side, if you like. So an inherent belief in people came out of those tours. And actually, a sense of training works. I relied on my training so often, go back to my training. I used my Northern Ireland training, say, in Iraq, remembered it in Afghanistan, you know, those basic tenets of life, right from the work, from, from a 23-year-old of learning the hard way, being attacked, of not being good enough that they didn't attack us in a couple of occasions. You know, you learn really hard way, but having the confidence to understand that and the confidence to move forward. And I think that was the thing I learned and that was the thing I would take into my future career, which is actually, I'm not always right, but at least I have the confidence to understand it. Richard, thank you so much. It's been an absolute joy. A pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Conflict Chronicles. You can stay in touch by connecting with us on Facebook, Instagram and LinkedIn. Subscribe to this show wherever you get your podcast from. If you have a story or know of a story that should be told, contact us by our webpage at the My Story section, conflictchronicles.com. <laughs>